Thank you, Bert. Mary, thank you again. Can you turn your Bibles to uh, Obadiah verse 1? Obadiah verse 1. And we're going to take a moment of silence and uh, pray for the offering and the message for the second session. Obadiah verse 1. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we approach you with our love gift, our love offering today. And we just want to express our thank you and gratitude with this gift. We thank you for all the blessings you've given to us in the temporal realm, all the logistical grace blessings, the food, shelter, clothing, all the things that we need in this life that you've given to us. We thank you for our homes, our businesses, our salaries that we have, our families. We just thank you for this country you live in. You grace this out and placing us in union with your son. We thank you for all the blessings that we have because of our union and identification with your son. And we're children, your children, Father, and you're the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills. And all that we have, we give back to you. It's all yours. And we look to be good stewards with what you've given to us. So, Father, we pray that we'd accept this offering, and we know that you accept all of it through, because of our union and identification with the son. That your son Jesus Christ. So we pray for this in Jesus' name, this offering. Amen. And Father, I also pray for the service, the second session in our study of Obadiah 9, and your wrath that was demonstrated in the 6th century BC, and we know you continue to demonstrate your wrath with regards to the nations. I just pray, Father, that you would help me to bring forth this uh, passage today by the power of the Spirit. Make it come alive through the power of the Spirit and guide us in the application. And uh, those in the audience, help them learn, understand by the power of the Spirit and apply what they're being taught and enjoy what they're being taught. And we pray, Father, that we would uh, absorb more of your wisdom that is found in your word and guide us in the application. So, Father, we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. In the second session, we'll be looking at Obadiah, verse 9, which teaches us that God will destroy Edom's military. We just saw in the previous session that God will destroy the wise men of Edom. And what you see here, as we'll be bringing out in this uh, second session, is the breakdown of the nation in all different levels, starting with its leadership on down. And uh, and so Edom uh, was torn apart and uh, by God, and uh, he used other evil nations to do that. So it says in Obadiah, verse 1, we'll read the whole chapter again and look at verse 9 in detail. By doing this, we're also interpreting this passage in its proper context. So we're paying attention to what goes before verse 9 and what comes after. So Obadiah, verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? 
But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The, Lord, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Yet just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually, and they will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame, Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath, the exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. What a tremendous passage that is, tremendous book, which is echoed by Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 7 through 23. So my translation of verse 9, Consequently, your mighty warriors will certainly experience dismay. O Teman, so that the people from Mount Esau will be violently executed like criminals because of the slaughter. Now, when it says in your Bibles in verse 9, your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, that's presenting the result of the previous prophetic declaration in verse 8. That's why you, I see, you see in my translation, I use the English word consequently to mark the beginning of Obadiah 9. And then it says, it talks about their warriors. Your warriors is used in a collective sense of Edom's valiant, brave, and courageous soldiers living during the period in which the God of Israel judges her through other pagan Gentile nations located in the Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world during the 6th century BC. Now, this term refers to the military heroes, or in other words, those who distinguish themselves in combat. A lot of times when we, a nation looks at their, their own military and thinks of their own military heroes, thinking that nobody else has any military heroes in their nation. There's a lot of great soldiers in other parts of the world. Uh, in every nation there are great fighters. And, uh, and so we have our great warriors as well throughout our history, great commanders, great uh, soldiers. I like to read, uh, and uh, when it comes uh, around uh, November 11th, you'll see me on Facebook, I'll, uh, I like to, um, uh, the Medal of Honor winners, you can go to the website and I like to 
I, I downloaded a whole bunch of things to my computer, all these guys in the middle honor winners that, since they've had the, the, the honor. And it's just amazing some of the great things, exploits of some of our soldiers. And, you know, falling in on a, on a, uh, a, a, a hand grenade that was thrown into a foxhole, falling onto it to protect the rest of your, your, your brothers that you're fighting with. Just stuff like that is like all over the place and tremendous exploits. You go, how did this one guy do all this? It's amazing things that the exploits. So our nation, like many nations, and Edom had them, great warriors, people, who great soldiers who did great things in the defense of their country. So when it says that these warriors will be dismayed, uh, it, these, the warriors of Teman, and by the way, as I'll say, uh, Teman is actually another synonym for Edom. But the, when it says that the warriors will be uh, dismayed, that refers to the dismay that Edom's mighty warriors will experience as a result of their political and military advisors being killed. If you could read my translation on the board, because it brings out the result idea that's found uh, in, the, in this passage. Let me just get it for you. Look at verse 8 on the board. During this particular time, the particular time is the judgment of Edom. During this particular time, declares the Lord, will I not absolutely cause the wise men from Edom, and specifically the advisors, military and political, to be killed from Esau's mountain? You could make that, as I said before, an emphatic declaration. I will certainly cause the wise men, uh, the advisors, to be killed from Esau's mountain. Then, here's the result of this. Consequently, your mighty warriors will certainly experience dismay. O Teman, so that the people from Mount Esau will be violently executed like criminals because of the slaughter. So they're dismayed, the soldiers, the great warriors, the military, because the, the political leaders and military advisors have been killed off. Now, just think what would happen if our military and political leadership was killed off in our country. What would the foot soldier do? Would the guy, in the, you know, what would they be thinking? They'd be terrified. Who's going to lead us? So the, it's been, what you see here is that God, through the Babylonian Empire and other nations, are gonna, he's going to decapitate the Edomite nation. He's going to decapitate her. That's, there was even talk that uh, there, there was, uh, you know, people... What was it? Not the last election or whatnot? Talking about decapitating the United States government. In fact, there's some kind of thing that's really interesting. That uh, I don't know if you've heard about it. They have the I don't know if it's microwaves or whatever it is. I don't. I was watching, reading about it, and uh, where some leaders. It was during the Trump administration. It was also one in, in the Obama administration. They would get they would they get disoriented and they got they would get whacked by these microwaves or something. They don't really know what it was. But that is dangerous. That's, that, imagine using a weapon like that and using it on your president or his cabinet or whatnot or the military leadership of a nation. That is deadly. And so I'm sure that nations think about the other nations and decapitating another nation, wiping out its military and political leadership. And that took place in the ancient world. That was done all the time. That's what happened to Edom. Their military and political leadership was uh, destroyed, and the so foot soldier had nowhere to turn. Now, we see that the word Teman there, uh, Teman, as I said before a, a few moments ago, uh, it was actually, it's actually a synonym for Edom here. It actually, it, it was, there was a city named Teman. Uh, Teman was a prominent city of Edom. We're not really sure where she was located. And its name is derived from the name of a grandson of Esau. If I give you a little map on the board that uh, brings this out, here's a map of, uh, here's Judah, as you can see. Let's see if I can get my, uh, my, 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 my pen here. Let's see if I can get my pen. Come on, where's my pen? 
And I don't see it here. Okay, we'll have to go without the pen. So uh, we have here, here's Judah, and then I'll move my mouse around. Here's Teman down here. They think it's around here, uh, which is, uh, you know, about, uh, it's, it's south uh, east of, uh, of uh, uh, Tamar. So, but here's Edom, and here's uh, Teman. The estimated location with it, uh, where it could be located, they're not really sure. In fact, there's a, uh, a good article in the uh, Lexham Bible. Uh, they talk about this place, Edom. Uh, they say in Ezekiel 25:13, the reference to Teman in contrast to Edom, an Arabian oasis southeast of Edom, uh, Edom, excuse me, may imply that Teman was located in northern Edom. Biblical writers sometimes use geographic opposites to refer to the entire region found between the landmarks. However, the location of Teman remains uncertain, they say today. It was uh, one of the things I like to do, part of my stu study in the Bible, is I read a lot of uh, archaeological stuff time from when I can, and uh, if I have like tons of journals for archaeology, but they don't really know for sure exactly where this location is. It was evidently, they say, the Lexham Bible, it was evidently one of the most prominent cities of Edom because the biblical poets, they say, regularly used Teman metonymically to represent Edom in general. In Amos 1.12, Teman is referenced in parallel with Basra, the capital city of Edom. End of quote. Basra, as I said before, if you look at Isaiah 63, when Christ comes back at his second advent, there's a passage in Isaiah 63 that I, I, I brought this out in the Habakkuk series. At Christ's second advent, everybody thinks he's going to land first on the Mount of Olives. Uh, he's going to uh, be actually also, in, before he gets there, he's going to go in, in, where Jordan is today in a, in a place called Basra where he will execute, the, I believe, the Antichrist that's going to be there. This passage in Habakkuk talks about the, his execution by the, the Lord himself. He'll split him from head to toe. And, but he'll come out of Basra Jordan today with blood on his garments. He'll be marching, you know, coming in. And so uh, that, uh, that uh, so Je Jesus will be actually, during the, his second advent, he will uh, be in Basra and he will be in uh, Jordan. And I believe it's going to be before he gets to the Mount of Olives. And uh, then he lands on the Mount of Olives, so he must get back in the air again. And he, he orbits there and he lands on the Mount of Olives. And then there's a great earthquake that shakes the whole world and changes the topography of everything. And uh, which is quite fascinating. So, uh, if you could look at Obadiah verse uh, eight again in your Bibles, in that day declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Yes, your warriors, Teman. Here's the result of this: your warriors, Teman, will be terrified as a result, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. So everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. That presents the result or the consequence of the previous prophetic declaration as I pointed out. Now what's really interesting here is this next word, will be cut down. It's translated will be cut down, the Hebrew word. It's expressing this word, this verb that's translated in your Bibles, will be cut down. It's expressing the idea that the God of Israel will violently execute as criminals the Edomite people as a result of their crimes against the kingdom of Judah, which are listed in Obadiah 10 through 14. Interestingly, this verb is found in Daniel 9.26. Hold your place. Go to Daniel real quick. I'll show you something interesting. It's used of the crucifixion of Christ, the execution of the Messiah as a criminal. Look at Daniel 9, 26.
Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. The 70 weeks prophecy, uh, 70 weeks in this prophecy is equivalent to 490 prophetic years, 483 of which have been fulfilled in minute detail. Uh, and uh, we see that the verses 24, 25, and 26 of the 70 weeks prophecy has been fulfilled in history. And verse 26 has been fulfilled. 27 is waiting to be fulfilled with the, 70th, uh, the 70th, uh, 70th week of Daniel. We have seven more prophetic years of God's disciplining the nation of Israel. The 70 weeks prophecy speaks of the discipline of the nation of Israel. And so we still have seven, uh, these, uh, 70, uh, one week left, the 70th week we call it, that's going to be yet future. Okay? Now, verse 20, this is the context we find verse 26. It says, after the 62 sevens, or in other words, after you have uh, the, the first, you have 49 uh, weeks, uh, uh, 49, uh, you have uh, the 69 weeks, which are broken up in two sections. Uh, one is equivalent to 49 prophetic years, the other is uh, 434 prophetic years. So anyways, you have 483 altogether, and there's seven, the one, one, uh, one seven, uh, 70th week is left, that's a seven-year period. Now, look at it says, after the 483rd prophetic year, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one, that's the Messiah, he will be put to death. The word there, the verb there, is the same verb that is used by the prophet Obadiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to describe the execution of the, the, uh, the, the military and the, and the people of the nation of Edom. Christ will be put to death. It means be executed as a criminal is what the word means. Be put to death and, and will have nothing. So go back now to Obadiah, verse 9. So when it says, your warriors team will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains, everyone will be cut down in the slaughter. In other words, executed as a criminal. Why as a criminal? Because of what the citizens of Edom did to the southern kingdom of Judah. God considers their act of betraying their, their, fellow, their blood relatives as criminal. He's treating it from his government, from his throne on high. God looks at a lot of crimes being committed on the earth. Okay? And he sent his son to the cross to deal, to pay the consequences for all the crimes we committed against God, which in his holiness he's angry about. So instead of pouring out his wrath on us, he poured out his wrath on his son. When he abandoned his son, his son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he had suffered the scourging and being uh, vilified and slandered on the cross and mocked and then uh, suffering the crucifixion, the torture of that, and then dying physically, all of that was the wrath of God in our place. He drank it all the way down for us so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. So we're all criminals in the eyes of a holy God. But now we're as white as snow. God looks at us as he looks at his son because God put the human race in two, two people, the first Adam and the last Adam. And we're in the last Adam through faith in Jesus. And so God looks at us as he looks at his son. Not the second member of the Trinity, but crucified, died, buried, raised, and seed with him. We're under his headship. We're no longer under the headship of the last Adam. And people under the headship of the... Of the we used to be under the headship of the first Adam. We're now under the headship of the last Adam. And so everybody under the, the first Adam is under the wrath of God. We're criminals in the eyes of God. We broke his law, starting right back to our progenitor, Adam and Eve. Because of them, we plunged the whole human race. We're a bunch of criminals in God's eyes. Jesus was executed as a criminal should and was so that we wouldn't be executed as criminals. See, God has a government. 
And he has a government, he rules, and he considers, certain, he considers sin a crime against his, uh, his government. So we see that uh, the will be cut down. If you look at the slide on the board, it is expressing the idea that the God of Israel will violently execute as criminals the Edomite people as a result of their crimes against Judah, which the Lord listed through Obadiah in verses 10 through 14. And when it says Mount Esau, that refers to the mountainous region in which the nation of Edom resided in the 6th century B.C. And it speaks of the mountain God gave Esau and his descendants to inhabit. Now the prophetic declaration contained in Obadiah 9, again, presents the result of the previous one in verse 8. Now in the latter, in verse 8, the Lord, as we saw, asserted that through Obadiah, that during the particular period of time in the future, when he will judge Edom, he will cause the wise men from Edom specifically her political and military advisors, to be killed. Now here in verse 9, the God of Israel, through Obadiah, asserts that Edom's warriors will certainly experience dismay so that the people from Esau's mountain will be violently executed in war because of the slaughter. So in other words, therefore, this dismay of Edom's mighty warriors, their military, will be the direct result of her political and military leadership being killed. There will be a loss of morale, among her troops because of the deaths of those who compose her military and political leadership. And with no leadership, her military would suffer defeat. And consequently, this would lead to the rest of her citizens being killed in battle because they will be slaughtered, or in other words, they'll be killed in massive numbers. So this prophetic declaration recorded in Obadiah 9, which predicts the destruction of the Edomite army, may have been fulfilled when the Babylonians took Jerusalem or when the Arabs invaded Edom and took over their cities, driving the Edomites to the west. But I'm in agreement with B.K. Smith. I quoted him last week. He says the following about the fulfillment of this prophecy. Archaeological, biblical evidence, he points out, to some in the time of the... Uh, point out to some time in the 6th century B.C. for the fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy of Edom's destruction. Gluck, based on his dating... An archaeologist based his dating on the final Edomite period on his work at Tel Kalefa. And then he says, Obadiah prophesied deportation for Edom. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler from 555 to 539 BC, campaigned in southern Transjordan and northern Arabia in 552 BC. He may have been the ally turned enemy that we saw in the prophecy, right? Then he closes with this. By the latter third of the 5th century BC, or perhaps earlier, the destruction of Edom was complete. And he references Malachi 1, 3-5. And their homeland was occupied by Nebatian, or you can say Nebetian, Arabs, end of quote. So they were gone. When God says, it's time for a nation to come to an end, I've had enough of you, he does it. And he doesn't waste any time. And once he gives the order for the destruction of a nation... It's all over. So this prophetic declaration in verse 9 also brings to a climax the prophecies contained in verses 5 through 8. Remember in verses 5 through 6 we read, they predict that Edom's wealth will be plundered. Verse 7 predicts that Edom's allies and treaty partners would betray her. Verse 8, as we read, predicts that her wise men, specifically her political and military advisors, will all be killed. And now here in verse 9, we have the prediction that Edom's military will be destroyed, resulting in the killing of great numbers 
of this Edomite citizenry. Now listen to this quote. And it's from a man named Weissman, great scholar, D.J. Weissman. He says this, the very structures of society in its constituent elements of economic well-being, wise rule in military security through armed force and international treaty will topple. Is God terrifying or what? Don't want to get on the bad side of God. The Lord who is the ruler of the heavens and the earth, the creator of the time, matter, space continuum, who holds it all together with just the word, who we're in union with, who indwells us, he indwells our bodies, he rules the nations. He ruled back in the 6th century B.C. Nothing's changed. He's still the king. He still rules on the, he's still on the throne. As I said many times, where's Hitler? Where's Stalin? We're all the great nations of the past. They're nowhere to be found. The great rulers, he, as he says in Daniel, he raises up rulers and he brings them down. He raises up nations like ours and he brings them down. Okay? So this perfect, prophetic declaration recorded in verse 9 of Obadiah, is expressing the idea that the God of Israel will violently execute his criminals, the Edomite people, as a result of their crimes against the kingdom of Judah, which are listed in Obadiah verses 10 through 14. This verse is expressing the God of Israel's wrath, or we could say his righteous indignation towards the Edomite people, for their crimes against the Jews of the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century B.C. And oh, if the nations of the earth, like Putin's Russia and China and Biden's America, all of them better listen to this. All the kings of this earth, all the nations, from the great to the least, this is what you're going to face when you do not kiss the sun and bow and worship Jesus Christ as your God. This is what's coming. This is what the, the people love to look at Jesus from one perspective, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he did. But he's coming again, people. The wrath of the Lamb is coming. And we, because we're the bride of Christ, and Jesus is not a white beater, we're delivered from the wrath to come that's going to strike this earth. It's imminent. The danger is imminent because the rapture is imminent. There's no date setting for the rapture. It could happen at any time, which is good for us, but it'll make us keep short accounts with God. When we sin, we confess it. We don't wait till next week. We confess it. We do what God's word says. We, we stay, we go to Bible class when our pastor's teaching. We serve, we give, we, we, we pray. We, do, we practice the word of God in our lives. We raise our children according to godly principles in our homes and do our businesses according to godly principles found in God's word. We practice the command to love one another. We love our neighbor as ourselves because that, because we know he could come at any moment. Give us our resurrection body, and now we have to give an account to see if we merit rewards or not. But the nations of the earth are in peril, including our beloved United States, because the, the wrath of God is on every nation that's under the deception of Satan. Every nation. Thank God for this nation that it has us here, sitting in the middle of it in the midst of it. There's not just us. There's other local assemblies like this throughout this country still. There's still a remnant of pivotal believers that do care about the word of God. They're there. Okay? I've talked to them in other parts of this country. They're there. 
just like you and I. So be encouraged. But we're the salt of the earth. The salt was a preserver in the ancient world. The church is. Those who do the word of God, put it into practice, know it, have wisdom, okay? Those are the ones that keep this country going. The rest of the world, everybody, all the nations and the citizens of the nations of the world, under the deception of Satan, deceived by Satan, they're under the wrath of God. And Christ, the Lamb of God, is going to exercise his wrath when he comes back to establish the Father's kingdom on the earth. Look at now, hold your, you don't have to hold your place. Go to the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. What is God's wrath? You could describe, the word there in the Greek is orge, they call it, is the word. But God's wrath is a reflection of his holiness. When I talk about holiness with regards to God, it's different than when I would say according to us. God's character is transcendent. It transcends the character of his creatures, moral, rational creatures, men and angels. The angels fall, fell, okay? Two-thirds went with uh, God, one-third went with Satan. But there was a fall on eternity past. And it says in Job that he finds fault with his, his servants, the angels. In fact, I think it's in this passage, John was weeping because no one could open the seven-seal scroll, the title deed to planet Earth, but only the lamb. No one was found worthy in heaven and on earth and underneath the earth. That would include the angels, the elect angels. But the lamb was able to break the seven seals. He was the one who was found worthy. His character, the members of the Trinity, their character has pure. There's no sin in it. In fact, we know what sin is based upon his holy standards that are found in his word. His character transcends that of his moral, rational creatures. God is nobody like him. He's incomparable. Moral purity. It's, beyond, it, it's far beyond our comprehension. So, when God is angry, it's a legitimate anger to sin. It's not like, you know, oh, you, you know, we were little kids. Oh, uh, you know, Jimmy, my brother, he, he broke my, my car. I'm going to smash him one, smack him one in the face, you know? It's the wrath we have. We get angry at somebody in, the, in, the human, in, our, in our lives, and it's not legitimate. We're showing no patience a lot of times, and we go after somebody and scream and yell at Rawr! I know, I used to do that. And no, that's not, that's not legitimate anger. There's a righteous indignation. We can have that, okay? Jesus had that when he threw out the, 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 the money changes in the temple. That was a righteous indignation. God, it's a righteous indignation that he destroys those who reject his son and the salvation he provided for them, which is free. All you have to do is accept it as a gift through faith. He has every right to be angry with the inhabitants of this earth and the nations of this earth, just like he was at every right to be angry with the citizens of Edom. So God's wrath refers to his legitimate anger towards evil and sin because both are contrary to his holiness or perfect character and nature. In fact, God's righteous indignation expresses his holiness. 
which pertains to the, what is his holiness? The absolute transcendent perfection of his character. His holiness is expressing the purity of his character or moral perfection and excellence and means that God can have nothing to do with sinners. sinners. In other words, God is absolutely, when you use the word beautiful, he's really the one who's truly beautiful because of his holy character. God, because he's holy, is totally separate from sin and sinners unless a way can be found to constitute them holy. And that way was provided through his one and only son and during his first advent. The presence of evil and sin and injustice is totally absent in the character of God. Thus, God does not tolerate evil or sin because it's contrary to his character. His inherent moral qualities, ethical standards, and his principles, that's his character, part of his character. Now listen to me. Our point of contact with a triune God, the holy God that we're talking about here, our point of contact with him was through the justice and his righteousness. How so? All about the doctrine of justification. Read Romans 1 through 3. Everybody... Jew and Gentiles contend before a holy God. That's what the first three chapters of Romans are all about. Nobody measures up. Nobody's righteous. No, not one, Paul says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, no, not one. Nobody, everybody falls short of what God requires. Perfection. But he sent perfection in his son became a human being, paid the penalty for our sins, paid the consequences for our sins at the cross, and now, when we accept him through faith, he gives us, God gives us his son's righteousness. That's all the justice and righteousness of God. His justice and righteousness condemned his son, condemned us so that we wouldn't be condemned forever in the lake of fire. His justice and righteousness said, justified, I accept you. But I didn't do anything. That's right, you didn't do anything. My son did all, my son did all the work. My son lived the life of perfection that you and I should have in the human race. He did that for everyone. Unlimited atonement. Those who appropriate this salvation, this justification, are those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. So God's justice and righteousness is the point of contact that we as humans have with a holy God. You can't get the love he's pouring out. His, he did it in love he sent the cross, his son to the cross out of love. But the blessings that flow from his love, grace, that grace, unmerited blessing that we've been given, it flows to us because Christ propitiated the Father. It flows to us because God declared us through his justice and righteousness as holy as he is through faith in his son. That's why the blessings come to us. That's why we're avoiding the wrath of God. We never have to worry about that. You could go out and commit murder like David did as a believer. You might have to suffer the consequences and get the death penalty or they'll put you away for 30, 40,000 years here and then your taxpayers pay for you and your, your room and board. But most nations, you execute the criminal. Not in this country anymore. So we see that God, he looks at us as he looks at his son because of his de the declaration of his, his the exercise of his justice and righteousness when he declared us justified. Okay? And now grace flows to us, unmerited blessings. 
He looks at us as he looks at his son. We're his children now. How much do you care about your children? Okay? But it all started with God exercising his justice and righteousness. We're talking about the holiness of God. So therefore, God's holiness refers to the absolute perfection of his character, expressing his purity of his character in moral perfection, in excellence, in intolerance, in opposition, in rejection of sin, and evil. Thus God is totally separate from sin and sinners. Why doesn't God do something about it now? Good thing, he, good thing he's patient and long-suffering because none of us would have made it. Remember, we want, you know, we, we talk about, you know, uh, God coming down in wrath and destroying his enemies on the earth now. But really, God, take your time. <laughs> Be patient. Because remember, he was patient with you and I. He waited till we were ready. He didn't wipe us out. He, let, he waited, and then the time was right, and he saved us when we were humbled, okay? Whenever that was. So he wants all to repent, change their mind about Jesus, his son, and believe. Now, of course, God in his omniscience knows that. Everybody, there's a time where then he knows who's going to believe and who's not. Here's the thing. He will, though, despite that, he will exhaust everything he can to save a person. They might reject it, but he will do everything he can. There are some people I know in my life, I can't believe they're still alive. I can't believe God hasn't killed them. But you know what? They're still alive. And sometimes he'll keep the most wicked people. You know, there's, everybody's wicked and evil, right? But there's some that are more wicked than others. He'll sometimes keep those people alive. You ever notice? Why is he that? Because he wants all people to be saved. Everybody. So... God's holiness refers again to his absolute perfection of his character, expressing his moral purity, and expresses uh, his moral perfection and excellence and intolerance and opposition and rejection of sin and evil. And thus God is totally separate from sin and sinners. Jesus is holy. He's the Lion of Judah, not just the Lamb of God. I told you my niece, they were, she was watching The Chosen with her father, and you could tell she's indoctrinated like the rest of the people in this country. They like the, the Jesus of love. They do not like the Jesus who comes to judge. They cherry pick, we call it. I'll take the Jesus this way. And this is what people did in, the, in Jesus' day. The reason why the, most of the Jews didn't recognize Jesus when he showed up <clears throat> is because they cherry picked what they saw in the scriptures. I'll just take the one who takes, uh, wipes out the Roman Empire. <laughs> they didn't want to see it die on a cross, crucified, killed by the Gentiles and the people, Jewish people. They didn't want to see that pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Don't want to see that. They cherry-picked. Our Messiah, national pride got in the way. And national pride did get in the way for them. Their national pride ended up in their judgment, just like Edom. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him, that's the Father, who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. This is the title deed of planet Earth. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who, that's what he says, who is worthy, key word, worthy, to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven, angels are in heaven, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And at this time, the church is in heaven. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept 
and wept, John says, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the son of David. He is able, he has the ability, he has the omnipotence, to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, we're sitting in heaven, and the Old Testament saints are sitting in heaven, righteous, right? But he's talking about no one has that transcending perfection of character. We got perfected because of our faith in Jesus. We got right with God through faith in Jesus, through the, the merits of our Savior, Jesus. He's talking about, is there anybody, angels, men, regenerate, anybody who's got this transcendent character that can open these seven scrolls? Because that's what it needs. God needs to open this. Only God can do this. No angel, no men. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. This is all apocalyptic literature here. We're talking about real events and people. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The elders speak of the church. I don't have the time to get into it. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection. Remember, we're reading apocalyptic literature here. He went on and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb to be praise, honor, glory, and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Now don't stop. No chapter break in the original. Revelation 6.1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. The seven seal trumpet and bowl judgments that express God's holy, righteous indignation against the nations. Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying aloud, like a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. They were, back in the ancient world, the conquerors of a nation, they rode in on white horses. This appeals to the frame of reference of the people in the first century. When the Lamb opened the second seal, Jesus, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To, give, to him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the land opened the fourth the four seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. 
the four writers of the apocalypse, right? Its writer was named Death, and Hades was falling close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened this fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, the, the tribulation martyrs. And they cro- called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of the, their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters were killed, just as they had been. I watched as they opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. All of this is expressing, the breaking of the seals, all expressing the wrath of the Lamb. His righteous indignation against the inhabitants of earth. And the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes and the generals and the rich and the mighty and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. We got caves over near Burton in Kirk's place. They'll be hiding out in those caves when he comes. Don't be looking for anywhere to hide. Anywhere. Verse 16. And they call to the mountains and the rocks fall on us because it's so awful what they'll be experiencing. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him, Christ, who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Excuse me, the Father sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. He sits at the right hand of the Father, does he not? Waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. But look at this. They're all in trouble now. They're all falling on their faces, hiding, hide us from him. Why? Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath, the Father and the Son has come. Who can withstand it? You don't have to turn there, but John chapter 3 says this. John 3, 36 Whoever believes, I don't care who you are, prostitute, Jew, Gentile, male, female, gay, lesbian, whatever you are, black, white, I don't care what you are, whoever, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on them. God's wrath remains on them. The whole world, you, we, a part of the human race, the wrath of God was on us at one time. No more. Here's one reason why you should rejoice today as you leave this place. Thank you, Lord. I do it all the time. I was worthy to face your wrath. Thank you for saving me from your wrath. Thank you for giving me eternal life. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm a wicked, wicked sinner. And you had every right and you had a legitimate reason for wiping me off the face of the earth and throwing me in the lake of fire. But you didn't. And this same love that how we, he treated us when we were his enemies were to extend to each other in the body of Christ because we're all beneficiaries of the love of God. But we also look at, our, look at the people in our periphery that need Jesus and the mess this country is in the world and all the nations of the earth that are under the wrath of God because they're deceived by sin and Satan, yet God's trying to call out people for his bride, to make a bride for his son. 
we were the, we're the first, we, we, we came out too, okay? We, 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 we're, we're part of the first fruits, okay? And now he's looking to get more people to snatch from the fire, to snatch from facing his wrath in the lake of fire in the tribulation period, which we just read about, the wrath of the Lamb. My little niece didn't like the idea of a Jesus who got angry and was angry with sinners and would kill them and put them in the lake of fire. That's understandable because the Jesus that she was taught was not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible 2,000 years ago did something about the sin, did something about being in the wrath of God. And now's the period before he comes back where you get to see the bad side of Jesus. He's a bad, bad person when he's angry. When I say bad, I'm talking about the lingo of today. He's a bad man. You ain't seen nothing yet. This world has not seen anything like the wrath of the Lamb. So pray for those in your peripheries that they might be exposed to the gospel to deliver them from that. And what should we do? Add gratitude to God for delivering us from his wrath through faith in his Son. Live the spiritual life. Keep short accounts with God. Be good steward with the time, talent, and treasure and truth that God gave you. Learn and apply. Practice the command to love one another. Love your neighbors yourself. Take the Bible doctrine. Model it for the people in your family and your neighborhoods and your jobs and your businesses. That's what we need to do. That's the, the proper response for children of God who've been safe from the wrath of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for delivering us from your wrath through faith in your Son. We just pray that this message will be a blessing to you people, bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray for this in the King of Kings' name, Jesus, your son, the Lord of glory. Amen. And I'm going to sing us a song and wrap it up.
And I 